Mark Barber said in his newsletter when he visited the United States, he said he was trying to figure out what do the U.S. produce anymore nowadays, and then he realized it's basically three things: beer, hooker, and weapons. That's it. <laughs> That's U.S. About eighty percent of the trade going through South China Sea is either to or from China. So, United States Navy is really claiming they're protecting the sea lane from the Chinese for the Chinese, right? <laughs> Which doesn't make sense. What I have said is that this campaign is not just about electing a president; it is about making a political revolution. Taking money from our children and borrowing from China. People are dying. Is the program so critical? It's worth borrowing money from China to pay for it, and if not, I'll get rid of it. Stop lying. I want the truth. The apocalypse altogether. Here's another episode of Macro and Cheese with your host Steve Grumbine. All right, this is Steve, the host of Macro and Cheese, and yes, we are about to do a fun podcast. But I'm going to have some fun at my guest's expense because we have been trying like heck to line this thing up. We're 12 hours apart. My guest is in Bali, and I'm on the East Coast. And the first time it didn't work out. We find out that the poor guy's Twitter feed had been hacked. So our communication paths have been cut off. We do it the second day. We get the 12 hours flipped around. So now we're on the third day. The Eagle has landed. I've got Carl Ja of the Silk and Steel podcast here to talk to me all things Taiwan and China. Welcome to the show, sir. Thank you, Steve. Thank you. Third time is a charm. <laughs> yes. I did not do this on purpose, but our last time was beautiful. Three episodes of Mao. But it was precisely one year ago when I was going through my memories, my Carl Ja first interview popped up. Wow, how convenient is it that we're on the annual plan? So welcome back, sir. I'm really glad you could join me today. Well, thank you, Steve. It literally felt like just yesterday. If you just have me talking, I can just go on and on, sir. <laughs> it's beautiful, and that's what we love here because that's why you're here. So. I want to approach this one slightly differently. I want to make this an evergreen podcast so people understand the history between Taiwan and China. But more importantly, I also want to evaluate it through the lens of today. China claims Taiwan as its own. Taiwan claims its independent place, and of course, the U.S. and the other G7 countries are trembling in their boots at China's ascendancy, and. I've been tracking this going back to President Biden's first State of the Union, where he put the bullseye on China amidst all the Russia propaganda as well. He basically said China was our number one problem, our number one concern. My jaw just dropped. Here we go again, again. We're going to have another Cold War. This is the U.S. strategy 
for how it keeps its economy going because they cannot find it within themselves to spend on the domestic economy. So instead, they do military Keynesianism. They pour money into all these military projects. And it's extremely frustrating. But I'm going to read this article from the Washington Post. John Hudson wrote it April 18th, 2023. It says, G7 stresses unity on China following unease over Macron's comments. Leading democracies downplayed their differences at a meeting in Japan after France's president revealed concerns about getting dragged into a war over Taiwan. And that's going to be the subject of our talk today. So in Japan, the diplomats from group of seven major industrial democracies stressed the need to unite against China's economic, military, and cyber assertiveness in a display of solidarity Tuesday after differences emerged recently over the fate of Taiwan. I'm not going to read the entire article, but this statement here should really set the stage for everything. We recognize the importance of engaging candidly and expressing our concerns directly to China, said the communique from the G7 meeting. Representing the views of the United States, Italy, France, Germany, Britain, Canada, Japan, and the European Union. We reiterate our call for China to act as a responsible member of the international community. This comes as calls for unity followed by French President Emmanuel Macron's recent visit to Beijing, after which he suggested that Europe needed to avoid getting dragged into a confrontation between China and the United States over Taiwan. They're lifting the veil, aren't they, Carl? They know it's not the G7, it's the U.S., What are your thoughts, first of all, just on the current scene? And then let's go back to the history of this whole thing. Well, first, I'm surprised they include China as a member of the international community, because (laughs) as I understand, international community consists of North America, EU, Australia, Japan, South Korea, and a bunch of other U.S. allies. (laughs) And frankly, what Macron has said is nothing controversial. All he said was, Europe should not be a vassal to the United States. Amen. And Europe should not be dragged into the conflict over Taiwan between U.S. and China. This is common sense. Why would Europe want to be the vassal of anybody? And why would Europe want to be dragged into a conflict that's halfway around the world from them? France, Europe face no strategic threat from China whatsoever. There's no strategic competition between Europe and China. Their sphere where it overlap is the trade. That's what Europe and China relation is really about. It's about trade because right now, China is the most important market for Volkswagen. Well, in fact, that should be the relationship between China and U.S. as well because GM today sells more car in China. But like you say, our politician has gone crazy and they want to just, as you say, push this military Keynesianism. I was reminded what investor Mark Farber said in his newsletter when he visited the United States. He said he was trying to figure out what do the U.S. produce anymore nowadays. And then he realizes basically three things, beer, hooker, and weapons. That's it. <laughs> That's U.S. But you're right. It could be different. It could be different. United States government could be investing in our infrastructure. It could be investing in 
public education. But no, 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 we can't do that. That's what China do. We're not communist. <laughs> We're free market capitalists. We can't do such things. So weapons it is. We have to continue to funnel dollars into Raytheon. And I'm frankly really surprised about the collective freakout over Macron's visit and Macron's statement. And it really shows that the so-called G7, their so-called solidarity, is really about rallying around the United States, following the orders of Washington. Because the whole Taiwan thing is Washington's baby. It's not Europe's baby. It's not France's baby. Why do they have to get themselves involved over Taiwan? But United States sees it quite differently because they see if China somehow gains control over Taiwan. In fact, many U.S. think tankers, Pentagon officials have stressed over and over again, if China somehow gains control over Taiwan, this is somehow the domino effect that will destroy the U.S. security arrangement in East Asia, and that will lead to the downfall of U.S. influence around the region. And which, if you really think about, how do you make case to everyday working class American that somehow Taiwan is in U.S. national interest? Doesn't make sense. Only to these Raytheon, Lockheed Martin funded think tankers, they take it as self-evident truth that U.S. have to defend Taiwan no matter what, which I have to remind people. There's a common misconception that somehow United States must come to the defense of Taiwan as obligated by the Taiwan Relation Act, which was passed by U.S. Congress in 1979. That's actually a big misconception. I read the Taiwan Relation Act. Anybody can Google Taiwan Relation Act, find it on the U.S. government site, and look up what it says. What it says is United States takes the Taiwan's issue very seriously and it wishes for the peaceful resolution of the Taiwan issue. United States will provide weapons of defensive nature to Taiwan and United States will maintain its own military capability to the point that it will discourage any effort to change status quo over Taiwan through non-peaceful means. So none of that language obligates United States to do anything. This whole language is about so-called strategic ambiguity, that United States is giving itself plenty of room to maneuver. It's not backing itself into a corner, which is a wise thing to do. What Biden administration has done is now increasingly painting itself into a corner. When Biden was asked by the news reporter whether U.S. would defend Taiwan, he said yes. And then later, White House officials have to come out and backtrack a little bit. But this already is a big step back from the prior U.S. commitment to the One China policy, which Back in 1972, when Nixon visited China and signed the Shanghai Communique with Premier Zhou Enlai, that formed the foundation of the Sino-American relationship going onwards. This is a language in the Shanghai Communique. United States recognized that Chinese on both sides of the Taiwan Strait 
recognize there's only one China. And United States takes no official position, and they recognize the Taiwan issue is to be resolved among the Chinese themselves. So this is a Shanghai communique. And if you look at the U.S. government webpage on the U.S.-China relationship, United States have reasserted its commitment to one China policy over and over. And that led to the 1978-1979 final formal normalization of ties between the two countries. And since then, for a period about 30, 40 years, U.S.-China tie has been rocky at times, but overall, it has been pretty good. And it got to the point where the two economies today are so intertwined to the point now some hawks are talking about decoupling because the whole point of decoupling is that U.S. and China has become too intertwined that it will make any kind of hot conflict between the two countries increasingly messy because what's the United States going to do is going to shoot down all these ships loading with Chinese goods coming to the United States coast. <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> so the idea is, no, 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 this is too much. We got to go back to the Cold War era when we have no relationship with the communist countries. Because that's a game that a lot of the U.S. military planners know how to play. We know how the Cold War 1.0 played out. We isolated Soviet Union and Soviet bloc. We cut off all the trade, and then eventually Soviet Union collapsed. So this is how we won the Cold War 1.0. So we'll just play the same playbook to win Cold War 2.0 against China. But this is crazy talk because China is nothing like Soviet Union of the yesteryears. And China is the world's largest trading economy. It has trade not just with the United States and Europe, but also has a huge trade with the global south. So what U.S. is doing in its attempt to decoupling from China, actually, it's cutting U.S. off from the rest of the world. Right now, what U.S. is doing is trying to build a wall around U.S., EU, and a bunch of other close U.S. allies. But not all of U.S. allies even signing on to the program. Macron is a big public break. I think that's why we have a big freakout among the G7. because. Before the consensus is, we're all going to stand together. We're all going to cut ourselves off from China, and in doing so, cutting ourselves off from the rest of the world. But Macron is a tool of the neoliberal order, but he is not stupid or crazy. He recognized that France have certain interests. It's not in France's national interest to follow U.S. on this very crazy path of decoupling. Stop me anytime, Steve. Otherwise, I'll just keep going, sir. Well, in this particular case, I want you to keep going, but I do want to bring it back. I think folks misunderstand the nature of what the U.S. has done. And just a quick history of this. Over the last 50 years, the United States has slowly given up its industrial base, has allowed companies to offshore and move production around the world. We saw the frailty of supply chains during the pandemic. The United States has gone largely from being one of the industrial powers in the world to being a service economy that stopped producing things, much like what you said in the beginning. 
And so we allowed our infrastructure to crumble. And China didn't do that. China built up its capacity for trade and for delivering goods and services around the world. And it did so in a way without tanks and nuclear arms and planes. China has been working in a much more cooperative way. And people are lining up to say, sign me up. I don't want the U.S. having its hands on me. And so you see the rise of the BRICS. Now, mind you, I think there's a much more technical answer. This is not as clean as maybe some alt media has tried to make it. The U.S. is not stupid. It is a wounded empire, and it does things that make you scratch your head. But reality is the United States allowed itself to fall behind. It thought that it could survive on cheap imports forever. And now we're watching the rest of the world buck, and Taiwan represents a piece of that capitalist structure. In this case, though, we have allowed our internal infrastructure, our social safety nets, our schools, our roads, our bridges, our power grid. We have entire cities that have turned into rust as we've watched production leave through these free trade agreements that the neoliberal order has forced on us. And now they're trying to claw that back out of necessity. And so the panic is palpable and it didn't have to be that way. But because we chose to be capitalist scum and war hawks and warmongers, and because we were afraid to push back on our own government and got wrapped up in nonsense, here we are now trying to drag everyone to the finish line with us because we didn't do what we were supposed to do, take care of our people. And they're bitter and they're jealous of China doing it. And quite frankly, they're getting lapped with this One Belt, One Road initiative. So my question to you, Carl, is what do you think China's play is? Are they just watching amused? Or are they concerned? What is China's angle here as they watch the U.S. do what it's doing? I will respond to you, Steve, with that meme that has been going around the Internet that says CIA has uncovered the secret Chinese plot to just sit back and watch as U.S. crumbles. And it was a picture of Xi Jinping leaning back on his chair and looking pensively into the camera. Really, the crumbling U.S. empire is largely self-inflected. China didn't have to do much. China is focusing on China's own problems. They have enough problems as it is trying to feed 1.4 billion population. And that's what United States government should be doing, should be more focused on United States. But I think what it is, is our elite really don't care about us. We are just peasants. They're lords in the manners. And the U.S. political elite, they have already made their billions. What do the people like owner of Amazon, Jeff Bezos, uh-huh. care about common people in the United States other than using them as peons in the Amazon warehouse? I think That's one big difference between, say, the Chinese leaders and the United States. Because the Chinese elite, I'm sure they also accumulated large wealth themselves, but they at least still try to do good for their people. They still try to grow China, grow the pie larger, so the tide lifts all boats. In the U.S., our elite is more focused on holding on to their portion of the pie and, and not letting the rest of us getting any crumbs. 
So I think that's one big difference. With respect to watching the U.S. crumble, what is the strategic value of Taiwan? Why does Taiwan matter? Much has been said about the parallel between Taiwan and Ukraine. There's major differences, but there's one similarity. Ukraine is emotional issue for many Russians. In the very similar vein, Taiwan is an emotional issue for the Chinese. Chinese can sit back and relax and watch American empire crumble and be chill about it, but they cannot be chill about it when it comes to Taiwan because the whole issue of Taiwan it poses a lot of emotional strains because the whole reason Taiwan was separated from mainland China originally it was during the century of humiliation Taiwan was part of the Chinese empire back in the 19th century but then China was defeated by Japan the newly industrialized westernized Japan that defeated China in 1894-1895, the first Sino-Japanese War. As a result, China was forced to cede the island of Taiwan to Japan. And what followed was 50 years of Japanese colonization on the island until 1945, until the end of World War II. And as a result of the settlement of the World War II, Taiwan was returned to China. As specified in the Cairo Declaration and the Post-Tan Declaration that all stolen territories from China, Taiwan, Manchuria will all be returned to China. So Taiwan actually returned to China after World War II in 1945. But what happened was China immediately entered into Chinese civil war between the communists and the nationalists. And as we all know, the nationalists, they lost out. So in 1949, the former government of China, led by Chiang Kai-shek, they fled Chinese mainland, having lost the civil war, and they came to Taiwan, which they had been holding since 1945 after the Japanese surrender. Again, the separation started in Chinese civil war. And Mao was fully intent to finish the Chinese Civil War and unify Taiwan by force. However, in June 1950, just when the People's Liberation Army was about to cross the Taiwan Strait, the Korean War happened. And as a result of the Korean War, Truman authorized U.S. 7th Fleet to sail into the Taiwan Strait. At that time, Mao's army did not have Air Force or Navy. So there's nothing they could do when the U.S. aircraft carrier group sailed down the Taiwan Strait and blocking any attempts for the PLA to cross Taiwan. So United States physically blocked the communist troops from finishing off the Chinese Civil War. And the separation of Taiwan and mainland continued to today. So this is a legacy of both China's century of humiliation and also the Chinese Civil War, the unfinished business that was forcefully intervened by the United States. And mind you, when Truman sent 7th Fleet into Taiwan Strait in June 1950, that was before the Chinese involvement into the Korean War. 
which happened much later. And in fact, all the PLA troops that was poised to cross the strait to go to Taiwan was later redirected to the north through Manchuria to enter into North Korea after General MacArthur had crossed the 38th parallel despite Chinese warning into North Korea. And that led to the Chinese involvement into the Korean War. So there's a lot of history there. And for the Chinese people, Taiwan is an emotional issue. It's about finally achieving unification of the Chinese nation. And you cannot argue with emotion here. This is very sensitive subject. But mainland China was very clear about what the red line is. Because for 70 years, mainland China did not make attempt to change the status quo of Taiwan. Well, one reason is first the capability issue. They first have to develop a navy and an air force. But the relationship actually became almost amicable during 1980s when the final artillery duel stopped. And the Taiwan martial law was lifted in late 1980s, and the old KMT soldiers were allowed to go back to mainland to visit their families. And a lot of exchanges have been going on between mainland China and Taiwan. People in the United States don't know this, but now there's about somewhere around 2 million Taiwanese currently studying, working, on mainland China. And that's out of a total population of 25 million. So 10% of the Taiwan population currently is living on mainland China, pursuing academic studies or their careers. There's a lot of cultural exchange, a lot of restored bonds. But whereas U.S. is seeing this outsider always intervening, always getting in the Chinese domestic affairs. So this is a Chinese perspective on Taiwan. And this is why it's a very sensitive issue when Nancy Pelosi flew herself <laughs> to Taiwan on a U.S. Air Force plane with U.S. Air Force fighter escorts. A very highly provocative issue. But again, China had adopted a rational approach they didn't shoot her down, to many people's surprise, and they let her land because China has been very clear where the red line is. As long as Taiwan do not declare formal independence, everything is fine. The status quo can go on. But what has happened, I would say, in the last decade is the United States is unilaterally backing away from the pledge it made in 1972 when Nixon visited Shanghai. And the United States is starting to take a step back from the one China policy it has adhered to for over 40 years. And now we have a different U.S. politician flying into Taiwan on government jet and loudly proclaiming Taiwan is an independent country. But it's all for grandstanding because even the United States itself does not have official diplomatic ties with Taiwan. That happened in 1979 when U.S. officially switched the recognition from Republic of China government on Taiwan to the People's Republic of China government in Beijing. And it has been ever since. There's only a so-called de facto U.S. embassy on Taiwan 
the American Institute on Taiwan. And none of the G7 nations have an official embassy or have official relationship with Taiwan. So it's a little bit hypocritical for them to say Taiwan is already independent and we will not allow mainland China to make a move. Mainland China is not making a move. That's the thing. What they did is waited after Nancy Pelosi's plane has lifted Taiwan. And then they launched a military exercise around Taiwan, which hasn't happened for two decades. So it's a reaction to the U.S. provocation. And this is the part that the Western media often miss. They switch the lens to show that China conducting military exercise around the Taiwan, not the cause. The cause was Nancy Pelosi's visit. And more recently, the Speaker of the House, McCarthy, meeting the Taiwan leader Tsai Ing-wen in Los Angeles. And that led to the fresh round of the Chinese exercise around the Taiwan Strait. So China was always responding to the U.S. action. China wasn't trying to unilaterally alter the status quo, but U.S. action is actually de facto changing the status quo right now because before the grandstanding of U.S. politicians, China have never done the mock blockade of Taiwan before, and now they're doing that. And it's going to happen more and more as U.S. politicians up their ante. But in U.S., we understand our politicians are a bunch of dumb, dumb, loud mouth. It's all a game to them. But the Chinese leaders, they take what U.S. leaders say seriously. When they hear U.S. is saying, we support Taiwan, we're going to defend Taiwan, they plan accordingly. You are listening to Macro and Cheese, a podcast brought to you by Real Progressives, a nonprofit organization dedicated to teaching the masses about MMT or modern monetary theory. Please help our efforts and become a monthly donor at PayPal or Patreon. Like and follow our pages on Facebook and YouTube, and follow us on Periscope, Twitter, Twitch, Rockfin, and Instagram. Russia invaded Ukraine. And my first impulse was, oh no, what's going on? But there's another impulse in the back of my head that says typically anything I get from the news is propaganda. And as I started peeling back layers and digging into NATO and what aggressive nature we were undertaking, and then learning the history of NATO and understanding it should have been disbanded long ago instead of being expanded, what would happen if Russia or China expanded their reach into, say, Cuba? I wonder what would happen with the U.S. and its military if some foreign power did something right on its doorstep. We never talk about that, but we're watching U.S. aggression through diplomatic and economic means. They're using the IMF, World Bank, 
World Trade Organization, all these other NGOs, and all the assets at its command and its minions around the world. And why are you doing this? And then it dawned on me, the U.S. has given up its productive capacity. And what does Ukraine have? Ukraine has lots of resources. And by cutting Russia off from it, once again, it further enhances and establishes their hegemony. So what is the U.S. value? Is it just to put a thumb in the eye of China? Or is there some strategic value to Taiwan? Is this the security state you are referencing? What is the point of the U.S. doing this? Well, one of the game, which is a consistent theme in both U.S. Congress and Pentagon, is to continue to sell weapons to Taiwan. In fact, that's what is actually stipulated in the U.S.-Taiwan Relation Act. I actually have it open in front of me so I can read it what the Taiwan Relation Act from 1979 actually says. It says, declares it to be the policy of United States to preserve and promote extensive, close, friendly commercial culture and other relationship between the people of the United States and people on Taiwan, as well as the people on China mainland and all other people of the Western Pacific area. Declares the peace and stability in the area it's in the political, security, economic interest of United States and are a matter of international concern. This first two sentences are just like, we love babies. Of course, <laughs> <laughs> everybody loves babies. Then it says, states that United States' decision to establish diplomatic relations with People's Republic of China rests upon the expectation that future of Taiwan will be determined by peaceful means and that any effort to determine the future of Taiwan by other than peaceful means, including by boycott or embargo, is considered a threat to the peace and security of the Western Pacific area and of grave concern to the United States. So what U.S. is really saying is if the Taiwan issue is to be resolved through military action, United States will have grave concern. Again, it does not obligate United States to do anything. Now, what it does say is the United States shall provide Taiwan with arms of defensive character and shall maintain the capacity of the United States to resist any resort to force or other form of coercion that could be jeopardized the security, social, or economic system of the people of Taiwan. So again, it just says allow the United States to maintain the capacity to resist, but it actually doesn't obligate the United States to do anything. So the most substantial part of the Taiwan Relation Act is actually the United States shall provide Taiwan with arms of the defense nature. And then if you keep on Google U.S. Taiwan weapons, and they will see that there was a recent news that U.S. just approved potential sale of $690 million in new weapon sales to Taiwan, including mm. missiles for its F-16 fleet. Okay, now let's talk about the nature of U.S. weapon sales to Taiwan. U.S. actually never sell the top-of-the-line military hardware to Taiwan. For example, U.S. will never sell F-35 to Taiwan, even though F-35 is a piece of crap. But the, the reason for that is because United States, in the back of mind, they always think that whatever weapon they sell to Taiwan could one day potentially fall into the hands of mainland China. 
reunification really happens. So they never sell Taiwan the good stuff. So instead, they sell Taiwan very expensive but outdated weapon platform. And even people on Taiwan acknowledge that these weapons will do nothing to enhance the actual security of Taiwan. So what are those weapon sales about? Well, one goes back to what you said earlier, the Americans' military Keynesianism. And then Taiwan actually ranks number six in the world in terms of dollar reserve it holds because Taiwan throughout the decade has ranked a large trade surplus with United States. So Taiwan's foreign currency reserve is quite large. And today, the Taiwan foreign currency reserve in U.S. dollars stands at $558 billion. Wow. What the weapon sells to Taiwan is basically recycling the Taiwan dollar reserves back to the United States. This, again, it's about grift. It's providing more contracts to our military industrial complex. This is why all the congressmen is in on it, because they all get kickbacks from uh-huh. <laughs> Raytheon yep. and Lockheed Martin. This is why Pentagon is behind it. Last week, the chairman of the Joint Chief of Staff, General Milley, actually gave an interview to Defense One where he actually said, okay, guys, whoa, let's cool off with the talk about coming war with China. This is not helpful. We don't actually want to go to war with China. He's basically coming out telling all the congressmen to cool it off with the rhetoric. Because at the end of the day, both the Pentagon and the congressmen, they just want to keep the grift going where they can retire very comfortably with large, generous retirement account when they can go retire in their Virginia mansion. Uh-huh. <laughs> They're actually not crazy enough to start World War III. But again, like I said, for the U.S. politicians in general, it's all a game. It's all a game like all about posturing. But the Chinese leader, they pay attention to what U.S. leaders are saying. And they plan accordingly. So this is why recently Xi Jinping gave a talk, like a public speech to the Chinese people. He said, United States is committed to contain China's rise. Now, I think Chinese leaders have held this view for a while by now, but they have never made the case so publicly to the Chinese people. I think the fact that Xi Jinping has said that suggests that the Chinese leadership basically have given up at this point any improvement in the U.S.-China relationship, any return to sanity from the U.S. side. And this is why Xi Jinping is not picking up Biden's calls. The White House has been trying to arrange a call to Xi Jinping for a while now, and then the Chinese just left them hanging. Because what's the point of talking to Biden when every time Chinese diplomats meet with Tony Blinken. After the end of the talk, U.S. just rolled out the new rounds of sanctions against more Chinese tech companies. So what's the point of talking? And by this time, they're probably also waiting to see what the election is going to bring in the United States. <laughs> because what's the point of talking to a president and his administration is they're going to go out of the power pretty soon. I think that might be another angle they're playing there. I spoke with Dan Kavalik about the Nicaragua book that he wrote 
and specifically talking about how Honduras has been very good friends with Taiwan, it broke off the relations and recommitted their relations to China. And a lot of different countries in an act of solidarity with China as part of this larger multipolar world that is evolving have been doing the same thing. What is the Chinese international plan for their development program that they've been working so diligently on? They're tying up the global south. What is your understanding of China's economic model that they're pushing as they go forward? So we have to go back to the Belt and Road Initiative. Around the time of the great financial crisis of 2008, China already realized they have a problem. There's a problem because they have been running a large trade surplus with the United States and the Western economies for decades. Their dollar reserve dwarfs even whatever Taiwan has. Oh, yes. But the problem is, what is that? It's just a bunch of IOUs, right? <laughs> and U.S. Federal Reserve can print money until the kingdom comes. We have the Fed Reserve's Neil Cash Carey, as we call him, publicly <laughs> said on interview two years ago, he said, oh, your ATM is safe. Your dollar is safe because Federal Reserve have infinite supply of money. <laughs> the U.S. government can blow money like crazy. All it yeah. takes is a stroke of the pen. Yep. Exactly. And then now everything is digital. They can literally just type a zero. So China has realized this might not be advantageous for China to continue to accumulate such a large dollar reserve and getting nothing in return. So that's why they started to actually using their large foreign currency, try to reinvest it into something meaningful. They try to direct their investment into mostly global South countries because U.S., and its Western allies are not making it easy for, for Chinese companies in their home market. So they had to go to places where the other Western multinationals are now willing to go because of risk. And the idea of the Belt and Road Initiative is twofold. Economically, it makes sense. China has throughout its decades of developing its own domestic infrastructure. It had built up immense amount of capacity, a lot of construction companies, a lot of equipment companies. But China is starting to get built out. Everybody can see China have high-speed rail going through some really remote mountains. It's really impressive. A lot of bridges and mountains. But with this huge capacity, it makes sense to export China's productive capacity to bring these companies to places like Africa, to build the ports over there, to build the infrastructure over there. And a lot of these projects are financed by Chinese banks. And the contracts are given to Chinese construction companies. So in a way, the money still comes back to China, but what they leave behind is physical infrastructure in Africa, ports, in places where there were no ports before. And that increased global connectivity on the whole. When China builds a port on the east coast of Africa, it's a port. The port sits on the ocean. China could use it. Anybody could use it. It's an open system. 
but the increased global connectivity helps China because China now is the world's largest trading nation. Now with the ports and roads and railroads in place, now China can export more goods to those regions. China is bringing cell phones and communication towers to a continent before that solely lacking in infrastructure. Chinese-made smartphones allow hundreds of millions of people to get on the internet, and this is a story that's very rarely been told in the West. Amen. So this global connectivity is good economically, but it also makes strategic sense because United States Navy has always made it clear that it intends to choke off the lifeline. To China's foreign trade, which is the Straits of Malacca, eighty percent of the Chinese energy supply comes from the Middle East, travels through the Straits of Malacca up the South China Sea into the Chinese ports. This is also why U.S. Navy is doing the so-called Freedom of Navigation Patrol in South China Sea. By the way, ostensibly is to demonstrate that China cannot block off this vital sea lane that. Six trillion dollars of world trade pass through, but what they don't tell you is this major trade lane. About eighty percent of the trade going through South China Sea is either to or from China. So, United States Navy is really claiming they're protecting the sea lane from the Chinese for the Chinese, right? <laughs> Which doesn't make sense. But what they're really doing is to show China we can screw your vital sea lanes anytime we want. We are gonna be here. We are gonna sail around the streets of Malacca. We know your choking points. We can seriously threaten your energy supply. And so the whole point of the Belt and Road Initiative is to build out networks branching out from China that. Doesn't go through one choke point that U.S. Navy could just choke off. So now with the land connection through Russia, with Arctic Sea Route again through Russia, and they're building ports on the coast of Pakistan, on the coast of Myanmar, with all these different other possible routes. U.S. Navy cannot be at all places at same time. Even United States will be spread thin trying to block off all these point of access. So China Belt and Road Initiative is maximize connectivity. That there is no one single point of failure for the Chinese external trade. I'm incredulous when I hear people that defend the U.S.'s approach to things, and that used to be me because I didn't know any better. I'm a victim of propaganda, just like everybody else in this country. But it doesn't take much to realize that everybody reacts to the U.S.'s aggression. The U.S. takes a step; they make a move to protect themselves. Every time the U.S. does something to destabilize a region, to put its interests above those in the area that they're going into, I don't understand people that can make excuses for. The U.S. saying, "Oh, look, they're being aggressive." You just went into their back door. You just put weapons around their country, and you mean to tell me they didn't just take it? What bad guys they must be! It doesn't make sense to me. Well, actually, it does. It makes total sense. Yeah. 
our media is completely controlled by four or five oligarchs who have absolute interest because their financial interests are tied up in U.S. policy as well. So it makes sense why they would push this state-based propaganda. But you sound like a kook to a lot of these people. You're standing up for China. You're standing up for Russia. It's not pro-Russia. It's just simply pro-reality. U.S. aggression creates a response. And just like the kid that gets shot in the eye with a spitball and punches the kid that shot him, it seems like all we do is focus on when China responds to U.S. aggression, we got to do something. Look at these people. So I hope listeners of this podcast who maybe trend to the establishment, please open your eyes. Please don't be such a sellout for the red, white, and blue. We need to be proud of this country again, and I'm not proud of it at all. Watching what we do, it has been an absolute embarrassment. And I like to say, oh, it all ended with Trump. It's gone on steroids under Biden. Yes. The rich people that own these media sites felt comfortable with Biden's brand of fascism as opposed to Trump's brand of fascism. So here we are, once again, all the power elite are calm and happy because of this. Reality is it's the same trash, only different, and it's gotten worse. What are your thoughts on that? People should be outraged in the United States that only two choices that we have is between Biden and Trump. This is terrible. Nobody is questioning that. It's so unfortunate. Our media has been hijacked by basically a few corporations, and they just pump out essentially propaganda. And most people are quite unaware, <laughs> if not seriously misinformed, about how the world really works. And especially at this juncture, U.S. is facing some serious crisis. This is a result of changes that started way back, like you said, back in 1970s, when U.S. industrialists chose to export the industrial capacity in looking for greener pastures in search for cheaper labor and cheaper land. And China did not come to United States to physically take the plants and to move them to China. China did not come to the United States and demand Apple move their factories to China. No, Steve Jobs did that. All the U.S. industrialists made a willful decision that they would offsource to East Asia. And at that time, they thought, okay, China is this vast pool of cheap labor they're going to exploit. And they probably thought China would continue to remain that way for foreseeable future. But to everyone's surprise, China climbed the value chain and they developed their own tech base and built up their own industrial capacity. And next thing you know, they're making everything. When I was growing up in China back in 1980s, China didn't make anything. China didn't make even TVs or refrigerator. We were so happy back in 1985 when my dad sent money back from the United States so we could buy a Japanese-made refrigerator and Japanese-made color TV. It's not because we're not patriotic Chinese citizens. It's because back then, the Chinese factories didn't make those things. China didn't make refrigerator until 1986. But what China did is to continually invest in education, 
continually invest in their infrastructure until they build up their capacity. They also force the corporation who want to do business in China to do technology transfer. Now, people in the United States, oh, that's so unfair. China steal our jobs, they steal our technology. Well, nobody is forcing these industrialists to go to China to open plants. They will did that for profit. And China, in assertion of their own sovereignty, they are demanding these industrialists to share technologies so the Chinese firms could catch up, the Chinese people could learn. And that's what any responsible government should do. The real question is, why can't United States have an industrial policy? Our only industrial policy is continually funneling taxpayers' money to the weapon manufacturers. That's our industrial policy. <laughs> the U.S. has made its decision that it is going to use dollar hegemony to try to control the world and live off of the cheap labor and cheap access to resources around the world. And I just got to correct you on one small thing. It's not even tax dollars. The tax is simply there to control inflation. They never use tax dollars. When a tax dollar is received by the federal government, it goes through a strange little system into the treasury's general account, but it's deleted. They never are reused. The money is spent once into existence and then deleted out of existence. This is why China's claim, these guys can just print more money. They just keystroke in this into existence and it's not tax money. That's the problem. Taxes are completely decoupled from spending. We can spend trillions. In fact, right now, the most evil thing is going on, the increase in interest rates. The only reason why the United States government and the United States economy is not in full-blown recession right now is because of this perverse raising of interest rates, which is pumping money into the interest income channel, which is going straight to the wealthy which is further exacerbating wealth inequality. It has nothing to do with tax dollars. They're literally giving the rich money. It's like a UBI for rich folk. And it's the only reason why the economy hasn't tanked. And they're depending 100% on trickle-down economics to keep the economy going. It's absolutely terrifying. But with that, Carl, I want to thank you so much for this. I would love to have you back on sooner than later. Hopefully we can do it more than once a year because I have so many other things I want to ask you. I really appreciate everything that you've said today. And I didn't understand the Taiwan situation at all. I had no idea of the implications of these various agreements that have been made over the last 40 years. And so you're a wealth of knowledge and a great guy, and I really appreciate you spending time with me. Thank you, Steve. Anytime. Where can we find more of your stuff? I know we got Silk and Steel podcast. Folks, check it out. But where else can we find you? What else you got going on? Okay, so I have to make an announcement. My Twitter account got hacked, unfortunately. <laughs> so please do not go on Twitter and go to Carlza and buy laptops. I'm not in the business of selling laptops ever. So don't do that. So I have opened a Telegram channel. Just go to t.me slash Carlza. That's my new Telegram channel. And I have my Silk and Steel podcast. And most of my appearances will appear on my Patreon page. 
just search Silk in Patreon. The first result should be the Silk and Steel podcast. It's unfortunate because Twitter it was one of my main channels for shit posting. Now <laughs> I'm gonna have to. It's divine intervention. This is a sign that I need to focus my energy elsewhere. But I do have a YouTube channel, so look for Carl Zah. I upload a lot of my interviews on the YouTube channel as well. And the Silk and Steel podcast, a lot of the free content you can find freely available on any major podcast platform like iTunes, Podbean, all of them. Yes, I'm all there. Well, Carl, this has been fantastic. Again, hope to have you back sooner than later. And please check out all of Carl's work. It's worth your time. I am Steve Grumbine with my guest, Carl Ja with Macro and Cheese. And we are out of here. Macro and Cheese is produced by Andy Kennedy. Descriptive writing by Virginia Cox and promotional artwork by Andy Kennedy. Macro and Cheese is publicly funded by our Real Progressive Patreon account. If you would like to donate to Macro and Cheese, please visit patreon.com slash realprogressive.